Tyler, you know how some things never change? Like what? Like the fact that every time you wear that shirt, I always see a cat butthole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whenever I wear this shirt, I always think about how I wore it to the grocery store that one time. And the guy was like, oh, it has cats on it. And it's covered (laughs) in cat hair. (laughs) I I forgot about that. But that's that's the shirt. (laughs) You're like, like, sometimes... At 3 a.m. I roll over and remember that comment and cry myself back to sleep. A little bit. You're not far off. Yeah. Did it's... you just see it in the in the camera? You saw the cat butthole staring at you. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to see it the entire time. <laughs> well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler, and my shirt has a cat butthole on it. <laughs> but it's, it's I... like very subtle, too. I like... like it's totally on purpose, but... Well, that's what I was going to say, is, like, it's almost like... Like, I don't think it's intentional, but it's a design, so they, the artist literally had to be like, and the butthole goes there. <laughs> so, it's a shirt with cats on it. One of them is facing the other way with its head turned, hence the butthole. Okay. Uh, well, hello. No, we already did that. Just kidding. <laughs> well, on that note, um, Patreon? I guess so. <laughs> So, um, if y'all guys have not checked it out, absolutely make sure you're to go over to Blood and Wine Podcast's Patreon page. There, we have a bunch of different murder minis, which are episodes just for our Patreon supporters. We are recording Murder Mini 48 after this, so we have almost 50 murder minis just for you. Uh, you can also check out different rewards for your level of support ranging from shout-outs in the podcast, such as the amazing Elizabeth Ramsey, who is our newest Chardonnay Syndicate member. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining the family. We could not do it without you. Hey, Elizabeth. Welcome. And if you are interested in joining our awesome family with Elizabeth, head over to Patreon and check it out. Not right now, because you're listening to us, but uh, maybe right after the episode. Or right now, if you have us on your phone and a computer in front of you, I don't know. Do what you want to do. Live (laughs) your life. Live your truth. And while you're at it, if you're on your phone, click that subscribe button so you make sure to get those alerts every Tuesday when we have new episodes. Whenever we say that, it just makes me want to be a YouTuber. Hit that subscribe button. Make sure to ring that bell icon. You'll get notified anytime we release new episodes. I don't know where I'm from. I don't know where that accent is, but it changed. It changed in the it, sentence. It, it was weird. Um, okay, so this episode is certainly off to a start. <laughs> um, <laughs> from cat buttholes to YouTubers to our topic, which is murders from the 2000s. Um, we've gotten some great feedback. A lot of y'all really love our different decade murder episodes. And since it's been a hot minute since we've done one of our decade ones, I was like, you know what? Let's do it again. Which uh, means the topic for this episode is murders from the 2000s. And that also means that we're going to have to figure out how we want to say the next decade's one. Because murders from the 2010s does not roll off the tongue. But murders from the aughts, um, I think, sounds weird. Because it is, and I don't even know how to spell that word. Is it like O-U-G-H-T? It's, like, you ought to do that? I think it's A-U-G-H-T. 
We both have computers in front of us, but I don't care to look it up. Got I it. I want to say it's A-U-G-H-T. Murders from August. Understood. Yep. <laughs> Mur- murders from the naughty oddies. Ew. I hate that. <laughs> why? Did, why? I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but yes. Anyway, that is a problem for future Brittany and Tyler, because this week's episode is murders from the 2000s, and... Like there always is when we do our decades, there was a plethora of cases to choose from. Too many. You know, and on that note, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get into wine. I have been so ready for this wine all day. It has pained me not to open it already. Yeah, well, and just so you guys know, it is Friday at 8.30, so it's drinking time. It is absolutely drinking time. We, honestly, it's time to catch up drinking. To all the all the people around us. Who have already been drinking since like 3.30. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, without further ado, Brittany, what wine are you drinking today? So my wine has a story. Okay. As all do, probably. I um, almost said as all do, but <laughs> that's weird. Um. Okay, so I'm going to 100% let you know I'm not too excited about this one, but it could it could surprise me. So here's the story. I've spent the last week at our mom's and I just came home last night knowing we're recording today and I had like no opportunities to go to the store. And so I was in her wine closet and I was like, are you going to drink this one? And she goes, ew, oh my God, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so I was like, well, can I take it then? I'm going to do it on the podcast. And she's like, that, I'm, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not going to touch that. Like, Mama she- was disgusted <laughs> by the thought no not even by the thought by the fact that you would ask something so vile she's like are you gonna drink that (laughs) she was like it may be in my wine fridge but i'm not touching that um and what she was absolutely not gonna drink (laughs) is the 2018 vincer crims gruner veltliner crimser sengrub from crimsal austria so it's a gruner veltliner let me guess, Mama bought it when she was going through her, like, Central European German, like, feeling it? I don't know, because it is a $15 bottle from Total Wine, and so, like, when I was talking to her about it, I was like, well, is it is it sweet? Like, is that why you don't want it? And she's like, I don't know, let's look it up. So, <laughs> why she didn't want to drink it, I don't really know. <laughs> Maybe she's had one and was not a fan clearly, but it's actually not a sweet wine. It is a medium wine that's very crisp, dry, and filled with a lot of bright citrus fruits. So maybe more so along the lines of a Pinot Grigio type. Okay. I bet it is something that would go really well with uh, Birox, which I want them so bad. Mama didn't make any for me. Just you. That's fine. Well, you're about to go visit for a week, so I think you're going to get enough of whatever you want. But it's um, probably, yes, good with those, but it's also really good with shrimp or spicy Asian dishes. You know, like a Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely very different. Um, This wine also has notes of spice and mineral, and it has a nice lingering finish. So, like I said... I don't know what to expect. I'm like, citrus, mineral, spice? What am I about to drink? Spice in a white wine is interesting. I can't really think of one like that I've had before. So. Yeah. Okay. So it's got like this pretty picture of like 
a city. I'm going to assume it's Austria, but it's like... um. Okay, well, that's a country. Yeah, I know, but I just, I'm talking about the land. Let, let... Okay, that's, I'll, I'll let you live. But almost like a woodcut kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. See if there's anything else I should tell you about this. Um, 12.5% alcohol by volume. The back says quality dry white wine. So there you go. All right. Quality. And it's a screw top. Nice. Oh, that's weird. What? What is? Oh, it's bubbly. Oh, no, it's not. No, is it? it's no, it's not. It smells minerally. Well, uh, before you jump into your wine, um, I'm going to put this back in the fridge. Oh, smart. Okay, I am back, and I see in that time you have picked up your wine and put it in front of you, because now all I can see is your wine and not your face. Well, listen, I wanted to hide behind it, and it is uh, sizable enough for me to do so, <laughs> because um, I'm back at it again with a box of wine. And, you know, I think the only boxed wine I've done on the podcast, I did a Boda Box cab back, I don't know, 30 episodes ago, something like that. And I really like it. I think Boda Box wines are just a really, just a solid B to B plus wine. You know, it's it's never something that I would sit there and be like, this is the best wine I've ever had in my entire <laughs> life. But I am never going to be even close to disappointed with a glass from a Boda box. That's a really good assessment. I totally agree. And also, one of these boxes is three liters, which means it's four bottles of wine. So it's really affordable. And if you've had a day like today... And you're thinking to yourself, I might want one glass more than a bottle. Then, you know, you can. Or if you're someone who also, like me, during the week, maybe will want a glass after work. Maybe won't. But I don't want to have to make the decision to, okay, do I want a glass and I have to commit to the bottle? Because I know you can have second day red wine. I feel like you can tell it's second day red wine, and I'm not about that life. It's never as good as the day you open it. No, but when it's in a box, it stays fresh, it stays away from light and oxygen, and so Boda Box, I think it's like, stays fresh up to three months after opening, which is perfect. If you can't go through four bottles of wine in three months, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> I guess don't buy a Boda Box. <laughs> If you can't go through that amount of wine in that amount of time, you have no reason to buy a box of wine. Why Why yeah. do you need that much wine? That's that's <laughs> fair. Um, but since last time I tried the cab, I wanted to uh, try things a little bit different. Yeah, what did you get? And I actually got the Shiraz. Oh, I think I've had that one. I don't think I have because I almost got the Old Vine Zen because I had that not that long ago, and it was good. But then I was like, no, I'm going to actually pick one I haven't had before. And so grab the Shiraz. And I know Shiraz is not an uncommon varietal, but it is never one that I will, like, grab a bottle of. So I've had it a few times, mm -hmm. but I honestly could not tell you the flavor profile, really, other than I think it's kind of peppery like a Zen. I don't remember. It's been quite a while. You'll have to tell us. I will. Um, and most Shiraz that you find is from Australia. This one is um, from California. 
So remember we talked about this one time that Shiraz and Syrah, I believe, are the same grape, just mm-hmm. named different things, like they're the same varietal. Yes. So this one is surprisingly really highly rated. It has like 87 points on the wine point scale, which I was like, oh, that's pretty impressive. It is and impressive. Boda describes it as their spicy Shiraz. It's fruit forward and snappy. There's aromas of red cherry and black pepper that lead to a body of ripe blackberry, blueberry jam, and orange peel. The finish, it is very pure, very rich, and this wine pairs perfectly with meatballs in roasted tomato sauce or grilled rosemary lamb chops. And obviously, it says you have to have it in front of a crackling fire. So, Another thing I didn't think of, if you're camping and want wine, a you box. bring a box. Dude, I didn't think about that either. But yeah, I'm going to finagle this uh, nipple out of the front and get my get my wine flowing. Okay, you do that. I know that was a weird way to say it. What else? What? Spout? Yes. <laughs> and speaking of camping, on the front it said, award-winning wines in eco-friendly portable packaging pairs well with everywhere that's cool i like the eco-friendly although there's a big ass plastic bag in it so how eco-friendly is that i know i was about to say because most places do recycle glass not all though which is horrifying but so a glass bottle is also eco-friendly more so than a bag of plastic well i don't know reuse the plastic Oh, yeah, that's about a 12-ounce pour. No, just kidding. That's probably only 10. The Not w- even. Uh, yes, it is, because that glass, it used to be mine, and <laughs> right where it curves and starts to go up is 8 ounces. Okay, well. <laughs> but you know what? You've got your wine now. I do, and um, smells very rich. Is it as rich as the chocolate cake that you were showing me and shoving in my face? Except I would love to eat it. So it wasn't that kind of shoving in my face. It was like a taunting. You were taunting me with it. Y'all, I stress bake like Izzy from Grey's Anatomy. And so I made myself an entire chocolate cake. And I don't have a cake pan, so I used two loaf pans. So I had two loaves of chocolate cake. Not eight, two loaves. I ate <laughs> one. Um, <laughs> when I showed Brittany, I showed her one cake. Um, it's fine. But yeah, and um, I'm ready to drink. And, you know, I actually just thought of one disadvantage to the box of wine is you kind of need to, like, decant every single glass or let every single glass breathe. I was thinking about that, of how you probably need to let that breathe for a bit because it's been in plastic. Or because of the way the spout does its thing, I wonder if it aerates it while it pours. That's a good question. I don't know, but... I don't know either, but um, I'm done talking about wine, and I just, I want to drink it. Sounds like a really good plan. So, cheers. Cheers. I'm confused. Yours probably still needs to breathe. I- I'm just going to stick with that. So let me tell you about mine while yours breathes a little bit, so you can take another sip. Okay. So, remember when you were like, is that bubbly? And I was like, no. It feels bubbly on my tongue, but it's not, and I'm confused. That's the first sign of the sickness, of the consumption. Bubbles on your tongue? Mm-hmm. That sounds like a line in a pop song. <laughs> bubbles on your tongue, bubbles on the dance floor. I don't know what that means, but 
This, um, okay, it's so. A drug, probably. Bubbles. It is probably a drug. Um, you kids. <laughs> I know, I just realized how old we sound. It's probably a drug, an illicit substance. And I give it to the children in my suburban neighborhood. Can I tell oh, you I never. about my wine grandma? <laughs> no, I'm having a conniption here. Clearly. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> bubbles yeah, on my what tongue. What wine are you drinking? <laughs> I've told you what wine I'm drinking. <laughs> I meant like, what about the wine you're drinking? Explain yourself. Are you sure you're not already drunk? <laughs> I hope not. Um, no, this is the delirium. the 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 exhaustion it does that. Okay, so it does. like I said for like the seventeenth time, bubbles on my tongue. <laughs> Um, it is sweeter than I thought it would be. Like, it has almost like a melony. <laughs> I just realized that's a name, but I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Melanie's listening. She's like, what? Me? <laughs> um, I taste some melon and, sorry, I gotta try it again. It's interesting. Interesting either bodes very well or not so well when it comes to wine. Well, I'm a little bit confused, which, again, another thing I've said multiple times, because it's supposed to be, like, lingering, and it's not. Like, I'm really not getting much flavor at all. It had more of a scent of this citrusy fruit when I first poured it. I could smell the citrus and the minerals, but as I'm trying it, it's pretty flat, there's not anything that's lingering on my tongue. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just kind of a basic white wine, like a table. Huh. It's kind of like a table wine. It's just... It doesn't linger. The cranberries are disappointed. Cranberries? Oh, the you band. have to let it linger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, sorry. I thought you were talking about cranberries in the wine. And I'm like, it's a white wine. I know it has cranberries spice. Cranberries in the wine. <laughs> bubbles on my tongue. <laughs> The cranberries are bouncing on the bubbles. So, I don't that's, I don't know. Oh my god, that's the dance. The dance is the cranberry bounce. We just started a TikTok craze. I'm just saying. Yeah, except that TikTok is uh, like visual and not auditory. So, we didn't until we create the dance. Okay, well, I'm not getting out of my chair. So. <laughs> um, Listeners, that's on you. Create the cranberry bounce. Start a TikTok revolution. Make sure to credit us in the comments. I don't even know how to feel. It's not that I'm disappointed. It's that I'm just <laughs> bored. This <laughs> gave me flashbacks <laughs> to high school. Shit. <laughs> Mama? No. <laughs> I'm just, it's boring. It's a boring wine. Maybe it would be better if I was not sitting in my bedroom at nearly nine o'clock at night drinking it maybe if i was like outside by the pool or on the, honestly if i was sitting on the patio at sunset perfect mm, okay because, that's fair we've had a lot of my wine last week was a sunset wine yeah so it's good i guess i don't know i'm just not getting a lot of like uh, it doesn't excite me so i'm moving on on to the next oh my god now you sound like my exes from high school <laughs> that's fine oh thanks <laughs> officially triggered here but that's fine <laughs> i'm bored i'm moving on to the next yeah same <laughs> sorry <laughs> um tell me about your boda box H hopefully it's breathed a little bit more take another sip 
Yeah, you know what? I I'm, I hope this reminds you of your childhood exes. Boxed red wine? Maybe it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot fruitier than I initially thought. Oh my god. My guys you dated in high school. Um, that is really true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's... um. <laughs> <laughs> it's much fruitier on the tongue than I thought. <laughs> oh my god. And very jammy, but very oaky. I w- was not expecting the oak. Oh, oaky, really? I will say one of the complaints I have about boxed wine is that it is always fruitier than some of the same uh, varietals yeah. in a bottle. It just... Uh, and maybe... I, I don't know. Boda Box, maybe they just lean on the fruitier end. <laughs> like me. <laughs> yeah. But all of their red wines are like that. Their cab is a little bit fruitier. <laughs> They're just the wine for June, I guess. It's Pride Month. <laughs> Boda Box, bring it out. Yes! Um, no, but it um, it's good. I'm not necessarily getting black pepper. Although I am getting kind of like an orange peel and spice there at the end, not in a holiday way, but it almost at the very end leans like a not sweet mold wine kind of profile. This would be very good at a campfire. This is definitely a wine that you, you know, spout into your little metal mugs and sit around the campfire. Ugh, grilling some meats or something. All right. So mine is the appetizer wine that you drink before sunset, you know, in the afternoon. You're ending the day. Yours is after it's nighttime. It's cooled off a little bit. Actually, okay, no. I just totally am changing my story because yours is the one, if you're having a campfire, it's like a fall camping trip. Mine's a summer camping trip wine. Mine is the wine that the parents that have to, like, legally be there to chaperone the Boy Scout camping trip, it's the one they bring out when the kids are in bed. And, like, they're in the tents. Cheryl. Cheryl, pour me a fucking glass right now. I watched my son make a lanyard for nine hours, and it's awful. (laughs) And she, like, passes over her big, like, 32-ounce Yeti. Mm -hmm. (laughs) With a straw, just in case they wake up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to go to the bathroom. Oh, we're just drinking water here. Go to bed, Anthony. <laughs> Ooh, Anthony's lanyard would be ugly. <laughs> uh, well, but they're all going to be ugly because there is going to be only one kid on that camping trip who knows how to start it. And for the rest of their lives, every single child will come up to them. Will you start my lanyard? I was not that kid. I was the kid who asked. <laughs> my friend to start it because i was trash so when you say lanyard are you you're not thinking the thing around your neck you're thinking the cool no. like plasticky thing where it was like a yeah, square not one that you like wear your work badge because that's how millennials go to work now um but the yeah the ones that are like a square tube that i don't actually know the point of it you put it on your belt loop and it just flaps around there like a stiff tail we had them like keychains and stuff, and they or like beginning of like friendship bracelets. And obviously, I wasn't a Boy Scout; I was a Girl Scout. We've talked about this, but you know what? I love that part of my childhood. I also yeah am nowhere near as outdoorsy as I used to be as a kid. Now I'm like, I... I'm sorry, a, a tent. 
Can we go glamping instead, maybe? Oh my god, you're just like my gay friends who I want to go camping so bad. And I've brought it up multiple times. And every time I bring it up, they're like, ooh, but glamping, maybe cabin, wood floor, electricity. And I'm like, you just want to get an Airbnb with some trees around it. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yes, that's perfect. All right, I'll go with that's your not friends. not camping. You can, like, take the tent. This is what we'll do. We'll get the Airbnb. Me and your friends will stay at the Airbnb, but it'll have, like, a vast backyard. It'll be like a mountain Airbnb, and you can go have a tent. (laughs) I'm not a dad going through a divorce. (laughs) You just go out in the back with your tent and enjoy your night camping while we have bottles of wine and we make s'mores on the fucking stove. (laughs) As if you think that tent is not loaded down, half of it is wine. (laughs) I know, I know. Anyway, we're not camping, though. Nor have we done a topic that's camping murders, and we totally should. We... Did we not? You did the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Was that camping murders? That may have been the topic. That camp murders sounds right, but I don't remember what case I did. Oh... I think we did. Oh, yes, I did Utoya. Yeah. But yeah, we had a Camp Murders upset God, Brittany. Sorry, I'm, uh, my apologies that I could not remember 109 topics right off the bat. You've disappointed all of our listeners. Do you want me to get into my case? I I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Get into your case. Tell me about your murder from the 2000s. All right. So Wait, is this the aughts? I don't know. Did you get it wrong? Excuse me, listeners. We must pause to look this up. Oh, guys, I fucked up. This is the odds. This is that episode. Future Brittany and Tyler don't get to figure it out. It's current Brittany and Tyler. The 2000s is referred to as the 2000s, the 20Os, the 20Hundreds, the the OOs, the double Os, the Oos, the Zeros, the double Zeros, the Naughties, the Knots, the Ots, and the Oddies. I don't believe any of that. All of that just made me really angry. (laughs) (laughs) What do you call it? The 2000s? Yeah, clearly. Considering that's what we just said. Okay, well, listen. You know what? I'm going to start calling it the naughties. Oh my god. (laughs) Murders from the naughties. Mm, From the age of when I was 7 to 17, the naughties. Oh my god. So, Brittany, tell me about your murder from the naughties. Okay, well, mine was a really naughty murder. Um, I hated that so much. (laughs) I hated that so much. You, like, visibly full-body cringed. If any of y'all have watched, um, it might be season one or two, early Grey's Anatomy... Uh, that one episode where Christina has to, like, oh, yeah. make up a porno to a patient, that is how you said it. You're like, ah, oh, it's these naughty crime. And I hated it so much. Yeah, I was definitely channeling my Sandra O. Hey, listeners. Sometimes an iPad update will happen at the worst time, and also sometimes your cat will refuse to let you record. Can you can you move? She's now showing me her butthole. <laughs> oh my god, Willow! But you know what? All things considered, you know, we had to update our iPads, all this, after we'd gotten to pour our wine. So 
I sat here watching some Tabitha Brown vegan cooking videos and drinking my wine, and I had a grand old time myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my second glass of wine now, and I think that means it's time for me to definitely jump into my case. Mm-hmm. So the case that I picked for the murders from the aughts, like I was saying, I'm gonna, I, I was channeling Sandra O, oh, but the moment has passed, so no longer doing yeah. that. I am doing the Long Island serial killer. For my sources, I used an article from the New York Times by Manny Ferdinand, Fernandez, excuse me, and Al Baker, an article in Time by Michael R. Sisek, and an article in Rolling Stone by Ellen Killeran. The Long Island serial killer is an unidentified, suspected serial killer who's believed to have murdered anywhere from 10 to 16 people over a period of nearly 20 years, from 1996 to 2010, and possibly even longer into 2013. All of the victims were mostly women who were associated with being sex workers, and he left their bodies in areas on the south shore of Long Island, New York. So this is a case that is there are so many spider webs to this case and I just did a spider web motion with my hands. Yes. There's this this case is a spider web. There are so many different avenues that you could go down to talk about. So, uh, you know, putting this together like was like first and fourth. Yeah. Putting this together was a lot and um yeah, I'm just going to okay, John Mulaney, but <laughs> what's the the joke about um how how do you get lost <laughs> oh. in Manhattan? <laughs> 11 up and 2 over, you simple bitch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, thanks for the laughter, but I'm about to get into some really depressing shit. So, here we go. So, early in the morning on May 2nd, 2010, Shannon Gilbert disappeared in Oak Beach, Long Island. 2010 is when your starts? You know, it's where I'm starting. Just wait. Okay. I was <laughs> like, Brittany, you did the wrong decade. No. I just said, if you remember, he was active for like 20 years. So this is where our story starts, but this is not where our story ends. Okay. So May 2nd, 2010, Shannon Gilbert disappears from Oak Beach, Long Island. Oak Beach was this kind of private, secluded community on the eastern tip of a narrow barrier island. And it was just a few miles from the line that separated Nassau County from Suffolk County. Suffolk? Apologies if I said that wrong. It's basically 35 miles from Manhattan. So this is like heading towards the Hamptons Fire Island kind of thing. Yeah, it's on Long Island. So on the night of May 1st, 2010, Gilbert, who was a 24-year-old Craigslist escort, she had been with a guy named Joseph Brewer. He was a first-time client, and they were at his house. Brewer lived in the gated community called Oak Beach Association, which was like a very upscale but modest collection of a, a few dozen homes. They were really close together, and they were right by the beach. Shannon Gilbert, she really wanted to be a professional singer, And she was using all of her earnings from her sex work to reconnect with her family. So this date that she had with Brewer was actually going to pay for a birthday gift for her mom, even though her mom later reported that she tried to talk Shannon out of working that night because just seeing her was present enough, which is heartbreaking. Right before Shannon Gilbert was last seen, she placed a 23-minute 911 call while she was at Brewer's house. And reportedly, she was screaming, they're trying to kill me. And according to a deposition that Brewer later gave, Gilbert, 
who had been diagnosed as bipolar but was not taking her medication, she became really unhinged that night. And Brewer enlisted her driver, Michael Pack, to help end the date. Brewer says that she's becoming disturbed, like something's not right. So he tries to get her driver to be like, yo, like, take her home. We're we're done. Oh, okay. I was thinking this whole time, like, it's him and we're not going to find out yet. Well, you got to remember, I already told you the Long Island serial killer is an unidentified serial killer. God damn. I know. Sorry, I just wanted to, like, I didn't want you to have that thought in your head that it was Brewer, like, this whole time. So at some point, after Shannon places this 911 call, she ran from her driver and Brewer into the darkness, and she starts banging on a neighbor's door for help. But by the time the police arrived, which a couple of the neighbors had called to alert that something was happening... She was nowhere to be seen. So flash forward like seven months, and it's December 10th, 2010. And Detective John Malia, accompanied by his canine in training, stumbled upon some skeletal remains along the northern edge of Ocean Parkway. Initially, investigators were assuming that he had just found Shannon Gilbert's body. But instead, the deceased was identified as Melissa Barthlamy of the Bronx, And she was a young woman who advertised escort services also on Craigslist and had last been seen in July 2009. Soon after, while the detective was searching the immediate vicinity for some more evidence, he came across the remains of three more missing persons. Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Amber Costello, and Megan Waterman. All of these women were petite 20-somethings and they had all been working as escorts. Because of the proximity to where they were found to a secluded waterfront called the Gilgo Beach, apologies if I said that wrong, I'll admit it, I didn't look it up, Um, but they became known as the Gilgo Four. By the time Shannon Gilbert's body was discovered on December 13th, 2011, so like a year and a half plus after she went missing, She was found in a marsh that was near Oak Beach, but by that time, six more sets of remains had been found for a total of 10, not counting Gilbert. Holy shit. Yeah, and four of those were found further west on Ocean Parkway. One was um, nearby in Nassau County, and a skull was found in Tobey Beach, which was matched to a set of legs found on Fire Island in 1996. So there are pieces scattered. Police suggested that they were all victims of a serial killer, and four of them, including a mother and child, have yet to be identified. And actually, fast forwarding very far into the future, the most recent identification happened in May 2020, so like, you know, last month. Oh. Yes, and it was Valerie Mack, who was previously known as Jane Doe number six. She was finally identified. She had last been seen in 2000 near Atlantic City, New Jersey. Her remains were found in two different places more than 40 miles and a decade apart. So in the year 2000 in Manorville, near where um, Long Island splits into like its two forks, And then the other part of her body was found in 2011 near Gilgo Beach, where the remains of the other deceased uh, individuals were found. This marsh, where all of these bodies were, it really was a perfect place to hide a body. It was along a very quiet beach, and it was obscured by all this thick bramble. You really couldn't see into that area. 
It was a hiding place, for sure. Because of where these bodies were found, a lot of people believed that the killer knew exactly what he was doing. So, for example, the murdered child and the victim thought to be the child's mother, they were buried a distance away from each other on opposite sides of the county line between, like, Nassau and Suffolk. I feel like that county is not said the way it's spelled, but... Sorry, so Suffolk. It's, I'm pretty sure it's Suffolk. Suffolk, I think that's right. I keep trying to say the L, and I don't think you do. Suffolk. <laughs> so they were found um, a distance away on either sides of this county line. So obviously the killer is using this to his advantage. He's trying to confuse law enforcement and all of the medical examiners because he knows because these bodies are found in different counties, they're going to be investigated by different precincts, and the connection may not be made that they were related. Aside from where this killer was placing the bodies, he also had another advantage, and that was the victim's professions. Sex workers oftentimes will use a burner phone to communicate with clients so they don't have their actual phone number, so it can be difficult to trace movements using a cell phone. Some sex workers are not as open about what they do for a living. And for example, Melissa, she had not told her family she was working as an escort. So when she went missing, they didn't have that crucial piece of information to give police. Yeah. Megan Waterman's family knew she was involved in sex work. But the night she went missing, she called her family from a hotel around midnight and said she was going to bed. She left her cell phone and her wallet behind. And was never heard from again. Costello did not bring a phone when she had her last known meeting. And it's suspected that the killer convinced her to leave her phone behind. But she'd actually used her roommate's phone to set up the date. So it's, it's kind of unclear if she actually had her own phone. And Melissa, who was secretive about her work as a sex worker, she probably had her phone with her because a man presumed to be the killer made repeated calls from her phone to her sister and family members in the days after she disappeared, taunting them. Oh my god. That is fucking horrifying. So we have 10 plus missing bodies being found in pieces all around. And Shannon Gilbert wasn't found until much later. So see what I mean when I said, like, that's where we open this up? Because if it hadn't been for her case... Those other bodies may not have been discovered when they were. Yeah. So after those first few bodies were found in, t- in 2010 and Gilbert was not one of them, her disappearance took on this new level of urgency. So for about a year before they found her body in 2011, she was seen as a critical missing piece. But what happened after she was found, all the discoveries of these bodies, is what has kept her specific story at the center of this Long Island serial killer saga, even though there really is a possibility she may not have been a victim of this specific serial killer. Oh. So before a medical examiner had completed the report on her remains, police told reporters that uh, they believed Gilbert's death was an accident and not a homicide. This was a preemptive conclusion that really pissed off her family, who believed she had been murdered, and it opened up the police department to all of these different accusations that they were not properly investigating her death. I mean, if they're going to try to say that before the medical examiners even looked her over, yeah, it kind of sounds like they don't really want to investigate this as a murder. 
Right. And the Suffolk County medical examiner eventually did rule that Gilbert's cause of death was inconclusive. And so her family was like, fuck that. And they hired an independent coroner to perform a follow-up autopsy, but it was also inconclusive. However, they did find this um, independent coroner found indications that Gilbert may have been strangled. And because of this, law enforcement did not believe that Gilbert was a victim of the Long Island serial killer at all, and that it was just a horrible coincidence that she was a sex worker, she happened to be, you know, go missing, and when they were looking for a body, they found all the others. They think it's a coincidence. I call bullshit. Yeah. And they're saying this based off of the fact that she had indications she was strangled? Well, there are several key differences between Gilbert's disappearance and that of the Gilgo Four, which were those first bodies that were found. So the four bodies found on Gilgo Beach were buried, and at least two of the bodies were wrapped in burlap sacks. Gilbert was found partially exposed to the marsh, with some clothes and personal items found a few hundred yards away from her body. It's been repeatedly reported that the Gilgo Four were all strangled, but it is also said that the four women were found to have died of asphyxiation, which is a general term of just being deprived of oxygen. So strangling is not the only way you can be asphyxiated. You could choke, you could drown, you could suffocate. So there's a difference in, in the distinction of the word use. One of the reasons that Shannon Gilbert's case has more focus could simply be because there was more information. Gilbert was less secretive than the other four women about where she was going and what she was doing the night she disappeared. She was the only one known among all of these victims to be working with a driver, and she was also the only one known to call 911. Her boyfriend, Alex Diaz, and her driver, Pac, they were in contact with each other immediately after her disappearance, and they teamed up together to try to find her. And unlike the friends of the Gilgo Four, people in Shannon Gilbert's life knew where she went on her final date. Like, there wasn't this, oh, she's out with someone, or they didn't know she was a sex worker. Like, they were fully aware of where she was, who she was with, she had a driver. Like, none of that is... Yeah. So, all of these details are known, which... I, I I hate to say it, but I, I understand why more focus was put on her case because there's when there's more information, there's more likelihood you're going to find something out. Yeah, no, that's fair. And with all those differences, I I can see the assumption um, or the idea that she might be a victim of a different killer. One thing that makes her case. Also very interesting is that in the years after her disappearance, her family honed in on Dr. Peter Hackett, who was a local physician, and they believed that he was a culprit in their daughter's death. They accused him of encountering Gilbert after she ran away from the neighbors who called 911 and that he gave her drugs that contributed to her death. You know, so she was freaking out and supposedly he gave her drugs to, to calm down. It said that she was not acting rationally, she was demonstrating paranoid behavior in some kind of psychotic state, and Hackett, though, has consistently denied ever meeting her. He was like, no, I didn't meet her, I just happened to live in the vicinity. In 2012, Shannon's family filed a civil suit against Hackett, alleging that he negligently administered medical care and drugs and caused her wrongful death. 
Shannon Gilbert's mother, Mary, claimed that he called her a few days after Gilbert disappeared, saying he ran a home for wayward women and had taken her in for a brief period on the morning that she was last seen. And this is an accusation that Hackett vehemently denied. Um, And this civil suit is still active. One of the things, obviously, the Long Island serial killer being such a it's a case filled with so many unknowns. And one of the biggest unknowns is, is there a serial killer? Like, is this one person or is this a dumping ground? And similar killers are active. But internet sleuths obviously are working on this case as well. And they're really confused by the investigation. And they want to know why the police have not been more transparent, particularly in regard to the 911 call that Shannon Gilbert made the night she disappeared. Police refused to release that, so we don't know what was said on that 911 call. Yeah. If police are so sure that Gilbert was not a victim of the Long Island serial killer, the internet sleuths are arguing, what is the harm then in revealing the contents of this call? If you don't think that she was related to all of everything else that happened, why aren't you releasing this information? So who did this? The biggest question of the Long Island serial case. There's a profile that's been created. Most likely, he is a white male, which is why I've been saying he, in his mid-20s to mid-40s. He's married or has a girlfriend. He is well-educated and well-spoken. He's financially secure, has a job, owns an expensive car or truck. He may have sought treatment at hospital for a poison ivy infection, and I think that was because of uh, the marsh and the fact, like, if he was leaving bodies there, poison ivy. Okay, that makes sense. I was like, he's the type of person that would go to the hospital for poison. I mean, honestly, I think that says something. Like, mm-hmm. is the type of person that would go to the hospital when they get poison ivy. It's like, oh, a pamper. Like, I, I could see that being a part of a profile. It's just very weirdly specific. Yeah. As a part of his job or interests, he has access to or a stockpile of burlap sacks. Lastly, he lives or used to live on or near Ocean Parkway on the south shore of Long Island. So in interviews with serial killer experts and criminologists, including a former FBI profiler, this portrait emerges of a man who investigators on Long Island believe is responsible for several of the bodies they have discovered near Ocean Parkway. And one quote that I wanted to read This is someone who can walk into a room and seem like your average Joe. And it's not just a someone. It's Scott Bond. He's an assistant professor of sociology at Drew University. And he's... Oh, yeah. Scott. Yeah. And he's also a serial killer researcher. Oh, you know. He also said, He has to be persuasive enough and rational enough that he is able to convince these women to meet him on on these terms. He has demonstrated social skills. He may even be charming. Which is disgusting. So he is this, like, it sounded like very stereotypical Hollywood ideal of this serial killer. This, like, white-collar, wealthy, possibly attractive, charming, but secretly, he's a murderer. He's Patrick Bates. Like, this is... From American, yeah, American yeah, Psycho. Yeah, yeah, that's the... Yeah, took took me a hot second. I was like, is that a case we've done? <laughs> and then I remembered you forcing me to watch that when we were in New Orleans. Um, it's a good movie. It was a movie. Um, yeah. I mean, he's he's that kind of profile of, like, 
I mean, he's the killer that in a CSI or a Bones would be the killer who gets a whole season dedicated to them because they're so mysterious and portrayed by an attractive white actor. Like, that kind of bullshit. Total bullshit. Well, like we've talked about, he obviously knew the area and he was familiar with where these bodies were being dumped. And it's clear that he did not pick this area at random. He knew exactly where he was going to place the bodies. I talked about how secluded and like the bramble, like it was a very hidden marsh. He knew exactly what he was doing and why he was placing them there. Another big clue into who this man could possibly be are these burlap sacks. So maybe he used them either because they're a part of his killing ritual or because they were the easiest cover that he could find at the time. But burlap is not something that's super common. And so it it would be easier no. to trace than something like a plastic bag. I mean, I don't know where I would find a burlap sack other than if I went to like a fabric store to get burlap. Right. Because it's not like you can buy a 20 pound bag of potatoes in a burlap sack. It's not 1924. Well, and it's like they're saying if it was a plastic bag, if it was a hefty garbage bag. Yeah, well, a lot of people have those. Burlap sacks? Yeah. No, that is not common. That is not something every average Joe has in their garage. <gasps> is it Massimo? For the moment, this perpetrator is known in law enforcement jargon as unsub, or an unknown subject. And to this day, no arrests have been made, no suspects have been identified, and it is still not clear or agreed upon if there is one killer or multiple killers at work. Oh, shit. To me, the thought of there being, like, multiple Long Island serial killers, I don't know which would be better, or I guess more comforting. Neither's better. Neither. But there being one person that's doing all this horror shit, or multiple people. I know. And like I said at the beginning, this case is so convoluted. And if you want a really good overview, read that Rolling Stone article by Ellen Killeran. It's titled, Why Hasn't the Long Island Serial Killer Case Been Solved? And so it has a lot of information, especially just further digging by Shannon Gilbert's family to get her case to be taken serious as a homicide. So... Yeah. The Long Island serial killer, there's so little information. Is it a person? It's obviously a person. But, like, is it one person? Is it multiple people? (laughs) Is it, you know, we don't know. Fuck. That's my case. So, I do completely understand and realize I spanned a little bit more than the aughts. But, yeah, you see why I picked it, though. Yeah, no, absolutely, I see why you picked it. These women have easily been forgotten a lot of them are not even focused on and again with all of these questions around is it one is it it's like more focus is going on like with the serial killer and not them so i yeah well that is my case from the 2000s tyler what case did you pick well you picked the long island serial killer and i picked ronald dominique the bayou strangler You know what? I just heard the name of it, and I need to get more wine before you can even continue any further. You do. You absolutely need to get more wine, because this case is too much. It is is Carly Rae Jepsen levels of too much. All right, well, I'm going to go to the fridge and pour more wine then. Okay. All right, I'm back with almost a Tyler-sized pour, so I think I'm ready. 
That is offensive. No, it's not. You agree with it. Do you want to see it? Yes. That's not a Tyler Poor. I held it up. I saw no, your face. That's, that's junior level. Come on with your brownie shit. Also, update on this wine. It's still just a wine. So, Ronald Dominique, Bayou Strangler, Sources I Used, Wikipedia, his page, Murderpedia, also his page, <laughs> and our... Oh, okay. I thought you found it on the Ted Bundy page. Thank you for clarifying. You know, just just a sad link. No, um, an article from All That's Interesting by Katie Serena. An article from ThoughtCo by Charles Montaldo, who I think I've used before because the last name Montaldo rings a bell. Um, and also an article from Seattle Times by Mary Foster. And as I was naming those names, uh, the wine hit me. So y'all are in for a damn ride. So my case, the murders span from 1997 to 2006. So it's not fully in the aughts, but it's enough so that I decided it was fine. So yeah. We both did killers who are active for multiple years, which means there's multiple victims. Yes, there are. So, Ronald. He was born in 1964 in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And this town, it's outside of the New Orleans metro area. It's a pretty small town, pretty small town Louisiana. When he was young, he's a kid, he really didn't show any signs of sociopathy but those would very much develop later in his life what is sociopathy like being a sociopath oh i thought it was another socio something no it's it's just the like the adverb form is that an adverb it's an adjective don't ask me about the english language i speak it but i adjective (laughs) i may speak it but it doesn't mean i understand it that's fully fully fair so, he wasn't showing any signs of being a sociopath as a kid, but uh, those would very much come to pass. So, he lived in this very, like, small, pretty run-down trailer park, but he was very active in school. He spent most of his free time singing in the choir. He was also part of the school's glee club. Um, I mean, he, he was a gay kid in the South in the 70s. You join the glee club. Ronald was actually known throughout Thibodeau as being this very generous kid. He would often help other residents in the community with yard work or with groceries. He was a helpful, nice guy. He wasn't. Let's be real fucking clear. He wasn't. So he very much was gay, but he never admitted to it openly he would spend his nights in drag, and he moonlighted as a Patti LaBelle impersonator at this local gay bar there in Thibodeau. I don't know if it was actually in Thibodeau or if it was just in a, a town near. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was, I mean, he was very much like when he was in, in his community and his element out, but to the rest of the community, he wasn't. And again, it's the 70s, early 80s at this point. We're heading right into the AIDS crisis, so it doesn't surprise me at all. Which, side note, because I know there are a lot of um, young people in the LGBTQ community, like myself, who grew up after the AIDS crisis and don't really understand the impact. Do some research, because, oh my god. I've watched a couple documentaries, and I don't remember the name of this one um, specifically, but... 
I remember them saying this, and it's probably going to stick with me until I die. Um, they were interviewing a person, and they were talking about how they were gay and part of the gay community in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis. And they were going to funerals of their friends every single weekend. And, like, the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir, half of them died of HIV and AIDS in just a few years. Jeez. It's not part of my case, but y'all, it's Pride Month. Educate yourselves. I did a presentation last year at work uh, for Pride Month and for HIV and AIDS awareness, and it opened my eyes how much I did not know and how much I did not understand, especially as a young gay man born in the 90s. Shit. Again, not my case about, but definitely uh, look it up because holy fucking shit. Anyways, Ronald Dominique. So he is seen in his trailer park as this, like, you know, very nice, kind guy. But he often frequented the gay bars, and the locals at the gay bar, they saw him as very off-putting and uncomfortable. So, essentially, this space where he was able to finally be him, him being himself was not a good person. And there was uh, some crimes that he did that kind of started everything. In 1985, he was arrested for telephone harassment, and he was fined $75. That's kind of all the information I saw on that. Um, And just a few years later, he was arrested for speeding and driving while drunk. And again, he was just ordered to pay a fine. And then just a little bit after the DUI arrest in August of 1996, that was when Dominique was arrested and he was charged with rape. He had allegedly coerced a man into coming home with him, and then he tried to tie that man up. Oh my god. And when the guy refused, Dominique became violent. And witnesses said they saw this half-dressed man escape Dominique's house through an open window that night. So this guy ran for his life. That is terrifying. Neighbors seeing someone like running out of a window. I'm glad he escaped because this sounds like a night of horror. I'm just trying to imagine seeing someone running out of a window, obviously in sheer terror. Yeah. And Dominique was arrested and he was taken to trial. But at his trial, his victim was nowhere to be found and was not there to testify against him. And so the case was dropped. And... I can totally understand. Again, this is the mid-80s, the Deep South, being a witness at this trial, saying that this man attempted to rape you, is also outing yourself as a gay person in the Deep South in the 80s. It is, and this person could have been victimized even further just by coming forward. Oh, absolutely would have been. But... Because of this, and because Dominique got off, he was determined he's never going back to jail. That's final. He is not going to do anything that would lead him to jail. Which didn't necessarily mean he was going to stop his crimes. It just meant that he was going to stop anybody who was able to witness his crimes. Or be able to call him out for it. I just had this weird deja vu of another killer having this similar idea of, well, I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to make damn sure my tracks are covered and I get rid of anyone who could turn me in. Mm -hmm. That's like, it's like 
it's like scary. I was about to say horrifying, but this is truly just terrifying and very scary. It's more than the horrifying defines, I guess. Yeah, this is straight up terror. Yeah. And shortly after his trial ended, Dominique killed his first victim, who was 19-year-old David Mitchell. So, very similarly to the situation before, Dominique talked to David and invited him to come home with him. And at his house, he tied him up, but this time he proceeded to rape and then murder David. Dominique then dragged David's body out into a nearby sugarcane field and just left him there. And David Mitchell's murder, that began Roland Dominique's nine-year killing spree. That is so many years to get away with this. So, shortly after David Mitchell's death in 1997, the Louisiana State Police, they launched this task force of sheriffs from nine different parishes to kind of come together to figure out what the fuck happened. And later, as the body count increased, the FBI got looped in because they started realizing this was not just a one-off murder. They had a serial killer on their hands in South Louisiana. Can you imagine what goes through the minds of a precinct when they make the connection that there's a serial killer on the loose? Oh, I mean, sheer horror of like, holy shit. Because I would imagine one of the first things crossed through your minds when you realize we have a serial killer is, oh, how many victims have we not found yet? If this is a killer with multiple victims... How many more are there that we are not aware of? Well, and I know there's also that whole, at what point do we tell the public there's a serial killer? Like, do we have enough information that we're really damn sure it's the same person? Or, for example, like in the Long Island serial serial killer case, that is like such a long title. But in that, people aren't, people being, some of the police aren't necessarily willing to admit that it's one person because they just don't know. But yeah. So, according to Jim Bernazani, who was the special agent in charge of this entire investigation, the FBI profilers at the time considered this case the most significant in terms of the number of victims that had been acquired in such a short amount of time. Because they were looking at over 20 victims in less than a 10-year span. 20? Over. Over 20? Yeah. And it became clear pretty soon that Roland Dominique had a type. He mostly targeted homeless men between the ages of 18 and 40, or he targeted social outcasts who he felt like no one would miss. People that are already victimized by society, he's targeting them even more as his murder victims. Both of our killers were focusing on these invisible victims. Victims that were, to the average Joe, an invisible person. Like, not someone that's, like, traceable and trackable. Like, with this transient lifestyle, it's... People whom society had already shunned. Right. And so they're being victimized, and nobody knows. Exactly. And if they do know, they don't care. Which is a whole nother fucked up angle. Yeah. So, most of the men that Dominique would pick up, he'd pick them up at gay bars, or he'd pick them up off the streets where they were working as sex workers. 
And then even others, he would show them pictures of this attractive woman that he had pictures of. And he said that, oh, this is my wife. And, you know, if you come back to the house with me, you know, we're going to have like a threesome. Or you're going to get to have sex with her and I'm going to watch because that's my kink because I'm into cuckolding or whatever the fuck. But he wasn't married. This was just a picture. I don't know if it was a picture of someone or a picture he like out of a magazine or what. It's fucking horrifying. And also, a lot of my sources use this and I thought I wasn't going to mention it. But I'm going to now because I've had a lot of wine. He was gross looking. He was like... An absolute no. An absolute thank you, next. Except not even thank you. An absolute ooh, next. This bitch gets half a foot off the next bus and gets sent right back. They don't even get a dollar. So, anyways, but the fact that he had this, like, oh, this is my very attractive wife as part of his thing. I mean, that's how he lured a lot of his victims that weren't necessarily... Uh, gay men that were attracted to him at a club or sex workers like that's that was a part of it in the end a lot of these guys did accompany dominique back to his house but pretty much none of them can really considered him a threat but at his house this like very mild-mannered everything described him as like a nobody the invisible nobody They were kind of mean, but I get it. But he would, like, flip the switch inside him, and he turned into this sadistic killer. He would tie up his victims, he would rape them. In pretty much every case that he got to the point of tying them up and raping them, he would then murder them. But he did tell police that if his victims refused to be tied up, then he'd let them go. Because, again, this was all about he did not want to go back to prison. So if he was going to do something like tie up and rape these guys, he was going to make sure they were dead. Which is why he wanted to tie them up. Exactly. So 23 men wound up being tied up, raped, and then murdered by Dominique. But his decision to let one man go would kind of be the end to his murder streak. Almost 10 years after his first murder, one of the men that Dominique allowed to go free um, was this guy. He was an ex-con. He was living in a homeless shelter. And during a, like, I don't know if it's called interview or just a talk with his parole officer, the victim mentioned what happened to him. He told his parole officer how he'd been tied up by this older man who had looked like he was kind of ill and uh, the man had tried to attack him but wound up letting him go and something in his story it clicked with the officer and the officer was like holy shit this is the serial killer we're after this is the guy that's been murdering all of these gay men and all these sex workers in the Thibodeau area and so just a short time after that police arrested Ronald Dominique But Ronald Dominique, he kept up appearances. He was like, oh my god, of course it's not me. So when the police asked for a DNA sample from him in 2006, he was very much like, of course, yes, here's my DNA sample. Assuming that him just being like 
willing to give it would be enough for the police to be like, you know what? Actually, we don't need it. We were, you know, we're right. being so helpful. You're so kind. That's not how it works. Yeah, that's not what the fuck happened. So the sample, it came back positive, and it linked him to at least two of the murders that they had. Two out of 23? Two out of 23. That's what they were able to definitively link him on with DNA. But once they started interrogating him, he confessed and offered a full confession on 23 murders. Dang, he really didn't want too much time in prison. Like he was trying, he was like, oh no. He was like, okay, if I tell him I did everything, maybe it'll be better for me. I hope not. I mean, your, your hopes are strong. So the police, they asked him, like, why he'd graduated from raping his victims to murdering them. And he told them that straight up, it was just he didn't want to go back to jail for rape. So after he raped his victims, he killed them. So they would stay quiet. They wouldn't be able to talk. The rationale of some of these motherfuckers blows my mind. Oh, I didn't I didn't want to go back to prison. So I decided to kill them. What? Exactly. Also, it's like, well, if you don't want to go back to prison, don't rape people. Don't rape people. Don't kill people. Maybe just, like, stop. But he didn't. So, after his trial, Ronald Dominique, he pled guilty to first-degree murder because that was how he'd be able to avoid the death penalty. And on September 23rd of 2008, he was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. And he is currently serving them at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. I was really scared for a split second when you said eight, that you were going to say eight years, and I was about to just flip the fucking desk. Oh, the entire time when I was researching this case, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, per se, where um, he would get less of a sentence because his victims were part of the LGBTQ community. Right. Or something like that shit would happen because it's the deep fucking sound. And I don't know why he only got eight consecutive sentences instead of 23, but it might have been he confessed 23, but they had enough evidence with his confession to, like, solidly do eight. Mm -hmm. Uh, But either way, he is in prison and will be there for the rest of for fucking ever and hope his goddamn bones rot there. Pretty much. So that is my case. That is Ronald Dominique, the Bayou Strangler. That, I don't even know how to respond. That was a lot, dude. I know. That, I found this case a few weeks ago and I was like, oh, I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Well, so where do we go from here? Well, I guess we go into postmortem. <laughs> no, I know, obviously, but I'm just saying, like, these were some really, these were heavy. These were very heavy. We, 2000s, uh, I guess the aughts. They ought not to have happened, because this was some fucked up shit. And also, quite interesting that we both ended up doing serial killers when that was not our MO. Like, that was not what we were yeah. planning on doing for this. I mean, it happened, and it's crazy, because I think when you think of serial killers, and maybe not you, but but me, I think of, like, the 70s and the 80s, because that's when there were so- Oh, absolutely. That's when there were so many. 
But what's really scary is it's like, oh, no, like, there were some 10 years ago. There are some, like, literally right now. Like, let's just amplify the horrors of our life and acknowledge that there are serial killers everywhere all of the time. And that, yeah, great. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there are serial killers right now. Probably outside your door. That's why mine is locked right now. Lock your fucking door. Lock your fucking door because as much as it sounds like it was a thing that was oh that was the 70s 80s no is violent crime down today and has been going down for a long time yes that does not mean there are not uh murderers out there right now so it's very much uh a thing today as it was then yeah and if you live in a big city there are more people so there are more murderers and if you live in a small city one in six murderer I just made that up. That's not true. I was like, oh my <laughs> god, really? No. No. I um because like my original thought was actually a legitimate one, but then I turned it on its head because if there are more people, there is more likelihood that things could happen because there are more people. And so I decided to take that stat and put that on a small small town, but you know, it was a joke. Look to your left, look to your <laughs> right. Both of those people are murderers. We yeah. could actually go into some really depressing statistics, and so we're not going to do that. I, we're, we're, we're absolutely not going to. But um, yeah, post-mortem. Um, I mean, we kind of covered it. These two serial killers are serial killers and are from the 2000s. And this is me giving you a book report on a book I didn't read. Um, no, but we both picked serial killers. In my case... Um, I mean, I think the main difference is... Yours is solved and mine isn't. You know, we know who, exactly. Yeah. But in both our cases, um, the victims were either sex workers or people who were victimized or on the fringe of society as it is. Yes. Uh, people who, I think, the killers themselves probably thought were not going to be looked into as victims all that much. Totally. And I think a big part of both our cases is that they weren't. Yeah, I agree. You look at serial killers who attack transient people, sex workers, people that aren't on the grid, people who have run away, like just, they're oftentimes victims because tracing it is very difficult. And I, it goes into that super fucked upness of these people who are doing the killing, these murderers, just want to kill so they are looking for the easiest victims and i'm like no just because identifying them could be more difficult does by no means make them a lesser individual so it absolutely is so frustrating that they are victims when they are just trying to make a fucking living they're victims when in so many cases they're already victims of so much more yes and to just continually and keep victimizing them. That's what these serial killers are taking advantage of. These people that are already victimized by so much. Yeah. But yeah, our case, the, but, wow. Both these cases, fuck them. Well, I guess next we'll do the 2010s and they just ended. So then we'll have to pause our timeline or go backwards. I mean, uh, shit, at this point in the year, we could probably very fully do an episode on the 2020s. I don't want to. I don't either. I just want to curl up into bed and cry and go to bed. I... Forever. For the rest of the decade. 
you know, I don't want to do that for the rest of the decade, but there have been far too many nights where I have done just that. Same. I don't want to for the rest of the decade. People say your 30s is like the best time of your life and when you come into your own. So I don't want to miss that by being in bed and crying. But damn, this decade is off to the roughest start I can remember. And let's be real, I am 27 years old. I really only remember one beginning of a decade. I remember 2010. I don't really remember 2000. I do People talk about Y2K. I know what it is now. <laughs> I don't remember any of that shit. I don't remember. I am positive that our family was very much like, oh, well, even if it's not a thing, we should make sure to unplug the computers before we go to bed, before we... No, I remember I was in Amarillo, and I guess I stayed up to watch the new year come in. Y2K, all of, all of that shit. I don't remember a damn thing. You know... I was in second grade. Let me live. But also... First grade? Dude, it doesn't matter. You were a child. Uh, but, like, the yes. thing is, do you think that there were those people that in, like, 1990 were freaked the fuck out about 10 years down the road? Probably not. Computers weren't as big of a thing. But, like, it's like, why did it all of a sudden become a thing when we were, like, a year out from 2000 when everyone's like, oh, fuck. Did we do these programs right? Did we just fuck everything also um last thing i'm gonna say there are definitely times when you can tell the age difference in the two of us and that was totally one of them because like for the most part we are very in line we have a lot of the same memories like yeah but there are these few instances when you were too young to remember and i was old enough to really remember like for example when you were 10 like y2k and 9/11 yeah like when you were 10 i was 16 i have so many more memories of that time in my life than you do and it's because of the stage difference but now you look at it and you're 27 and i'm about to be 33 like what's the fucking difference there's not isn't that crazy exactly Oh, yeah, your age becomes so much less of a... It's just no longer a factor anymore. Exactly, yeah, factor, that's what I was looking for. It, it becomes so much less separative as the older you get. Because then you you look even older and you're like, oh, shit, someone who's 73, someone who's 67, y'all the same fucking age. <laughs> and they may as well be. Um, because Exactly. Well, and what like really freaked me out a little bit there... Not really, but kind of, is when you were talking about being in your 30s. And I was like, but I'm in my 30s during this decade. And there's some overlap. I mean, you won't be 30 until yeah. I'm almost 36, but I'll still be in my 30s. Dude, we're going to be in our 30s at the I same time. Let's four years of overlap. Let's Whoa. party. 30s are for... Party like we're in our 30s, where we get hangovers, where we stop drinking at 9 p.m. No, that never stops. That's the 40s. No, that never stops. Drinking? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well. Well, what do they say? Like, 20s are when you're, like, figuring shit out. 30s are when you're like, yeah, this is me. This is the best. This is the my life. And then 40s are when you're like, oh, shit, I should buy a house. That's that's millennial speak, right? I mean, I always thought of it as 20s when you're like, I want to have fun, but I'm poor. And your 30s are when you're like, oh, I can kind of afford to have fun. And your 40s are like, kids are fucking expensive. <laughs> or for a single people like myself, no kids, my 40s. And me. <laughs> I know. 
Don't <laughs> don't act like I'm not just as single and alone in a fucking desert landscape <laughs> that is my love life. A tumbleweed just flew, just rolled past the the cow skull. That's mentally my love life. Yeah, but we don't have to pay for daycare and we can spend our 40s spending that money on ourselves and being like, dude, I'm fucking rich. Yeah, but we <laughs> yeah, but we also don't get to split a one bedroom apartment rent. So it's a give and take. We don't get to split rent. Um, hopefully in our 40s, we're not renting. But if you are like fucking more power to you, because if your AC breaks, they'll just come in and replace that shit. That happened to me, not gonna lie. It was one of those moments when I was like, oh, thank God I don't own this place. <laughs> I would have been You just sit on the couch with your wine and be like, garçon, mon essai. What the fuck is wrong with you? Are you that person? Do you call people garçon? Like, talk about being a sh- I have so rude. <laughs> I have never called someone garçon in my entire life. Why are you being so rude? <laughs> I just said I haven't. Okay, you know what? Tell our listeners about what it's like to rate review our podcast. You know, you're just sitting on the couch being this, like, prissy little bitch. But I will talk. <laughs> I, I sit at my desk working because I'm not allowed to go outside because I either get coronavirus or a sunburn. I'm, pro- you know, what? I'm actually next to my window. I'll probably get a sunburn regardless, dude. You're probably gonna get both at this point. Uh, like I was telling you, just tell them. Like I was telling you earlier, we all wake up and we're like, "Oh fuck, is that allergies, coronavirus, or, or am I just hungover?" Or all three, because that can happen too. But yes, like Tyler was saying, if you are enjoying our podcast, thank you so, so much for listening. Be sure to hop on over to Apple Podcasts. Please rate and review us. Let us know what you think. Your five-star reviews literally light up our days. Absolutely. And while you're doing that, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out our website. Check out our merch store. If you've ever wanted our logo on a t-shirt, on a hat, on all the things you own, check out that merch store. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.